please be advised, this podcast contains graphic audio and themes that may not be appropriate for all listeners. Human beings feel vibrations at much lower levels than would pose any threat to a building's structural integrity. But the residents of Champlain South certainly felt the effect of these sheet piles being driven into the ground by, you know, huge vibratory jackhammers attached to excavators. This is really intense construction equipment. Nick Nehamas is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter for the Miami Herald. And what he's talking about here is the construction of 87 Park. It's an ultra-luxury high-rise condo that was being built back in the spring of 2016, right on the doorstep of Champlain Towers South. The vibrations Nehemiah says were rattling Champlain's residents were caused by sheet pile driving, which sounds like this. That was just about five seconds of driving one sheet pile, but big structures like 87 Park don't use just one or two. They use a lot of them, and they take a lot longer than five seconds to drive all the way into the ground. You've probably seen sheet piles. They're long, narrow pieces of metal, usually 30 to 50 feet long, but they can run up to 100 feet. And what they do is they lock together in long rows to make things like underground retaining walls and foundations. So back in March 2016, the noise and vibration of sheet pile driving went on and on for days, over and over, as dozens of them went in just a little more than 10 feet from Champlain Tower South. So they felt the vibrations happening very much. There was one resident, an elderly woman, who who wrote that she could feel the vibrations. She noticed a crack in her balcony, and she was really worried about the safety of her building. Now, there's no real way from the documents to know if perhaps a crack was there already, but she and her husband died in the collapse uh, five years later. In fact, as we're about to learn, when Champlain's pool deck was breaking away from the foundational wall of the building around 1 a.m. on June 24, 2021, it did so at almost exactly the spot where vibrations from that sheet pile driving got so high that work on 87 Park ground to a temporary halt five years earlier. Now, at this point, it is important to recall what the investigation into this disaster has established. Champlain Tower South failed as a result of multiple factors, poor design, poor construction, poor maintenance, and possibly vibrations from this big new building next door. Now, those vibrations are something much more tangible, more recent, and easier to point a finger at than those other largely hidden and historical factors. But it is also worth mentioning that from the beginning, the developers of 87 Park have pushed back very hard against the idea that they bear any responsibility at all and that they have very deep pockets and so as the anniversary of this disaster approaches, a question with millions of dollars at stake is still not settled. Did the new building going up have anything to do with the old one going down? I'm Paul Bieben, and this is Collapse, Disaster in Surfside.
You may remember that there is just one video of Champlain Tower South crashing to the ground in the middle of the night. It was captured by a security camera at 87 Park. The camera is mounted at the southeast corner of the pool deck, looking toward the northwest. It's a clear, windy night in the hauntingly silent image. You can see 87 Park's two beautiful pools, lots of deck chairs and umbrellas. And above some treetops, Champlain Tower South rises in the distance, and then out of nowhere, falls in a cloud of dust. In the aftermath of the tragedy, survivors and relatives of the dead filed a class action lawsuit against more than a dozen defendants, including several associated with 87 Park, saying the construction played a major role in the disaster. As we've heard in previous episodes, some of those defendants have settled for millions of dollars, but not the developer or general contractor of 87 Park. They've argued from the very beginning that their work had nothing to do with the disaster. Before work on 87 Park even began, the people in Champlain Tower South didn't like their new neighbor one bit. But there was basically nothing they could do about it. Between the two buildings is the beach access path that we heard Surfside police officers run along immediately after the collapse, trying to figure out what had happened, hearing cries for help in the dark. The border between the city of Miami Beach on the south and the town of Surfside to the north runs right through there too. And Nick Nehemas says the tension along that divide as 87 Park took shape tells a story about the evolution of Miami, one with some eerie parallels to the story of Champlain Towers itself. So 87 Park really represents the changing of the old kind of Miami Beach and Surfside into what, you know, visitors now see when they visit Miami. These gleaming glass and steel towers designed by Starkitects, multi-million dollar units. Nehemas has covered everything from the Panama Papers to the illegal gold that flows into Florida from South America. He's also investigated the foreign money flowing into Miami real estate and how it has helped transform the city. What 87 Park replaced was this aging, kind of decrepit hotel known as the Deezerland that, you know, catered to the middle-class tourists, some of them French-Canadian, who so famously populated Surfside. And it was kind of falling apart. And so this very prominent Miami development group, led by Pedro and David Martin, uh, father and son, Cuban immigrants, the father, decided to buy the hotel. Their first plan was to, to renovate the hotel and build a condo tower off to the side. Ultimately, they decided to tear down the entire hotel and just build this gleaming condo tower designed by Renzo Piano, who's one of the most famous architects in the world. And the neighborhood in North Beach is very low-rise, working class. You know, it's not South Beach, it's, it's North Beach. North Beach is much quieter, more residential. There are no nightclubs up here. A lot of my colleagues actually live in North Beach because it's affordable. And just a few blocks to our north is the town of, of Surfside. I live on 81st Street. And so David Martin's tower was kind of a brand new style of development for this neighborhood. And so it was very controversial. 
Champlain Tower South was about 32 years old in 2013 when David Martin made a deal to buy the lot next door, right over the town line. At that time, the line was a street called 87th Terrace. And what happened to 87th Terrace is a window into how development has worked for decades in South Florida. Yeah, so this property where the Deezerland was, where 87 Park is now, is right to the north of, of one of the largest parks in Miami Beach, uh, North Shore Open Space Park. And so the developers pitched their brand new tower as, as kind of being on Miami Beach's version of, of Central Park. And so they were not looking to attract local buyers. They wanted out-of-town money, uh, foreign money, people used to the very best in luxury, the very best in amenities. And so to do that, they needed to make their property as big as they possibly could so they could build the biggest tower possible. And so among their maneuvers, one was getting uh, the commission, Miami Beach Commission, to pass an ordinance that allowed them to build higher. Now, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Sort of like the way things played out 40 years ago when Champlain Towers was going up and the town of Surfside granted those developers a waiver to add a penthouse. That was after the developer, as you'll recall, had kicked in 200 grand to fix Surfside's decrepit sewer system. The more things change, the more they stay the same. This time though, the building wasn't just getting taller, much more important for Champlain Towers South, it was getting wider too. And that's after the developers made a $10.5 million donation to Miami Beach. They paid the city $10.5 million voluntarily and in exchange received the rights to 87th Terrace, which was a public street that separated the Deezerland in Miami Beach from Champlain Towers South and Surfside. It was the municipal border as well as the border between these two properties. So by taking over this public street, the developers of 87 Park were able to build right up against the line with Champlain Towers South. So the distance between the two properties went from 60 to 70 feet to 10. Um, and really, I mean, the properties became were touching at that point. As close as this new building was going to be, as much as it might directly impact their quality of life, politically, it might as well have been on another planet as far as Champlain Towers was concerned. So the residents of Champlain Towers South were aware of this political back and forth that was happening in Miami Beach right from the beginning. I mean, they knew this property was on their doorstep. What they found was that they had no power or agency to influence anything that happened in Miami Beach. The residents of Champlain Tower South were not the constituents of the politicians in Miami Beach who were making decisions that ultimately may have impacted or affected Champlain Tower South to a very great extent. So Surfside, including the town manager, were kind of looking just to the south, watching and not very happy, but really unable to influence what was happening. project wasn't controversial just in Surfside. Not everyone in Miami Beach liked it either. Reporter Ben Conark, whom we heard from a lot in our last episode, dug into the reaction in North Beach. 
He says at first, folks there liked the sound of what the developers said they were going to do. But when they changed the plan, some of them soured on the project. This all started actually with a historic uh, Miami Beach hotel that the developers identified as falling into disrepair. And what they were proposing to the city of Miami Beach was that they would use this property, renovate it, and use it to kind of revitalize the area. Because something to keep in mind is that North Beach isn't like South Beach. It's not a tourist mecca, right? At some point in this process, they said that their original plans weren't going to work and that they would need to tear down the hotel. And that was what first sparked some pushback from residents of North Beach and community groups who called this a bait and switch. Conark says there was a feeling that the developers had been working behind the backs of some city officials in order to woo others and that the big new condo, not the historic renovation, had been a done deal from the start. At a city council meeting, uh, it became clear that they were no longer planning to renovate the hotel, but they were actually going to demolish it and build a condo tower there. And even the mayor at the time seemed to be taken off guard by this, but commissioners were already in the loop with these developers and the plans were going forward to kind of shift the design of this proposed development. And they were going to lose the hotel. That commissioner at the time actually said, you know, the residents of North Beach have been clamoring for years for positive development. And if you want North Beach to stay the way it is, then you can keep it the way it is. Um, but he said, you guys are all talking about this being this beautiful historic hotel. And what I see is a dog, you know, basically dismissing um, any concerns about losing this historic structure and saying it was ugly, it was dilapidated. And it was kind of from there that they moved on to this negotiation where they agreed to seed a public street to the developers. And so, just like that, with a $10 million check, 87th Terrace was absorbed into the footprint of a high-rise luxury condo going up right on the southern edge of the pool deck at Champlain Towers South. Now, of course, nobody knew at the time how fragile that pool deck was or the full extent of the other problems that were hidden inside the aging concrete and steel of Champlain Towers South. The 2018 Morabito Report, which would lay out in excruciating and expensive detail just how much work the building needed, was still two years away. But Nick Nehemas says as soon as the work on 87 Park got underway in 2015, residents of Champlain Towers South started complaining in droves. When 87 Park began driving sheet piles, they said they felt their balconies um, vibrating. One resident said that, you know, he was thrown off a treadmill nearly in the building's gym from the, the sheet pile driving. And so Champlain Towers South residents really started getting up in arms because the construction happening just feet away had a pretty immediate impact on, on their lives. Their cars were coated in dust and occasionally oil from, from machinery spills. Their pool deck got closed down. And so Champlain Towers South hired a lawyer named Robert Sarko to put pressure on the developers at 87 Park to at least compensate them for, for the nuisances, like getting their cars washed, you know, getting the balconies cleaned, uh, fixing up the pool. And he had some very contentious back and forth with, with the lawyer for 87 Park and with the developers themselves and used some pretty choice language. The Herald obtained these emails and they are, to put it mildly, 
fiery reading. Zarco threatened to sue, saying, quote, My clients are up in arms. I am done playing Mr. Nice Guy. He also lashed out at David Martin, the developer whose father, Pedro, had founded their family company. I am offended by David's lack of integrity and character, Zarco wrote. He is all talk and full of something I can't say here. Just another South Florida rich kid who lives off his father's success and beats his chest while he rides daddy's gravy train. The developers dismissed Zarco's comments, and in the end, there was no lawsuit. Champlain Tower South later turned down a $400,000 offer that would have required them not to say anything bad publicly about 87 Park. Champlain South's lawyers ultimately decided this was unenforceable. How are they going to police one condo owner from mouthing off to TV or the media? And so they rejected this 400000 offer. So there was a real contrast between the developers of this luxury tower, on the one hand, who, who are building multi-million dollar units for out-of-towners and, and foreign buyers, and the residents of Champlain Towers South, who've been in the community for a longer time, are less wealthy. You know, this is their primary residence. 87 Park is mainly second, third, even fourth homes. So the residents of Champlain South very much felt like they were being pushed around by this big developer who got his way with the city of Miami Beach and was going to try and get his way with them, too. According to Herald investigative reporter Sarah Blasky, Sheet pile driving on the 87 Park site started on the far side of the lot and worked its way around to Champlain Tower South. They have to create an underground retaining wall around the entirety of their construction site so that they can do everything else. And, and they do that, you know, starting along the ocean, the east side. On the south side, there's a park. On the west side is Collins Avenue. It's a road. They drive piles there. So they're driving sheet pile along the ocean side of their property, and then they take a left. And taking that left brings them within, you know, 15 feet of the southern side of Champlain South, of their their neighbor to the north. And what they realize and what they know at the time and what's part of Florida law is that you cannot do damage to your neighbor if you as a developer do any sort of damage um, you know, structural, but also just cosmetic, right? You rattle enough things and some drywall falls. Um, those aren't going to kill anyone, but you still can't do that. You're still liable for that as a developer. And so what you do is you monitor. You monitor your vibration levels when you're close to a structure, and that's exactly what 87 Park did. Chris Pasito is the president of Velocity Engineering Services, a geotechnical engineering firm in South Florida. You might hire him or someone like him to monitor vibrations on your site. Though, to be clear, Velocity did not work on 87 Park. The reason that the vibrations are monitored is so that if those levels start to get up to the levels that could cause damage to an adjacent property, that that can be identified and the activities can be stopped, paused, or adjusted in order to bring those vibrations back down. And the way you do this is pretty straightforward. You use a seismograph, the same device that measures the strength of earthquakes. 
In this case, they're about the size of a small suitcase, and they're placed on the ground so their sensors can measure the frequency and intensity of the vibrations your construction might be causing. Sarah Blasky. They've got their sensors up right along the wall of Champlain South, that southern wall. And so when they come around the corner to drive to drive piles along that edge of Champlain Towers, really to protect it from the rest of construction, they almost immediately exceed vibration limits. And what's interesting here is they exceeded their own vibration limits. There are no standards in South Florida that, that say, you know, you can't exceed X, Y, or Z particular type of vibration. It, it just says you can't do damage to your neighbor. And so developers have to set their own standards. And that's what 87 Park did. They set a conservative standard of 0.5 inches per second velocity, which is what the Federal Transit Administration would say is the standard for avoiding any sort of structural damage to a neighboring structure. So let's pause for a minute here to explain what these vibration limits mean. 0.5 does not mean that the ground is moving back and forth half an inch per second. It means that a fairly stationary soil particle is vibrating back and forth at that velocity. But engineer Chris Pasito says even a little vibration can alarm and annoy people nearby. You know, people will complain about their pictures falling out of level on their wall or items on shelves that might vibrate out of place, even though those vibration levels are not significant enough to cause damage to the structure, they can cause other things to occur. The U.S. Bureau of Mines is also an authority on this and says velocities under about two inches per second shouldn't damage a reinforced concrete building. As Sarah Blasky said, the Federal Transit Administration sets its levels lower at 0.5 and recommends keeping vibrations even lower if surrounding structures are fragile. But as we've learned back in 2016, nobody knew just how fragile Champlain Towers South really was. And in March of that year, when pile driving began along the edge of Champlain Towers South again, Sarah Blasky says it quickly went over the 0.5 limit the developers had set for their own work. They keep exceeding their own standards. Almost every day for the two weeks that they're driving these sheet piles, they have moments, several minutes of time, where as they vibrate these pieces of metal 30, 40 feet into the ground, they exceed their standards. And, and on one day, March 10th, the seismologist on site comes over to the crew that's vibrating these pieces of metal into the ground and says, stop, stop, you've exceeded the levels, you've exceeded the standards that were set. By the developer, they had hit 0.82 inches per second. Certainly, that exceeded the limits, but it did not come close to reaching those two inch per second velocities that the U.S. Bureau of Mines would say, you know, might actually cause structural damage. And what's interesting about this moment is they had made it about halfway down the wall. And prior to this, their biggest concern, and records show this, was the pool at Champlain South. Not the pool deck that we all talk so much about now that we know about this collapse, but the pool itself, the shell 
Shells can be fragile, especially if they're in the ground. You know, vibrations can crack the shell of a pool, but they had made it past the pool at this point. The risky part of the pile driving, as far as they were concerned, was now done. So the site superintendent, a man named Frank Wiza, had a quick and colorful chat with the seismologist and the pile driver operator. And in no uncertain terms, Wiza gave them their marching orders. They're past the pool. That's what he tells them. You know, the fragile part is behind us, is what the records show him saying. And then he says something that you're probably going to have to bleep out. He says, the wall, keep going. And he means this privacy wall, this concrete block wall that sits in between Champlain South and this construction site. You know, he's looking at this thing. He's like, concrete block, if it falls, we'll repair it. That's pretty clearly what the records show from the court. And so they continue driving the piles. And I I just want to reiterate, they had hit these levels previous days when they were closer to the pool itself. They hit these levels later days. They they couldn't keep their vibrations under 0.5, but they never exceeded anything that the U.S. Bureau of Mines would have said would definitely cause structural damage to reinforce concrete. The caveat is all of those numbers, all of the studies that say that, assume that the reinforced concrete structure is healthy. Champlain Tower South was not healthy. Geoengineer Chris Pasito says while those vibration levels wouldn't have caused new damage in and of themselves, they certainly had the potential to make a bad situation worse and speed up the process of a building that was already falling apart. So there is no way that the vibration levels recorded there would damage a properly constructed reinforced concrete building. However, we do now know that Champlain Towers was not a properly built, properly maintained structure. It had deterioration of the concrete. It had water intrusion that was causing the rebar, the reinforcing steel to corrode. As that steel corrodes, it expands and starts to blow the concrete apart. That's what we call spalling of the concrete. It was already underway. So if you add vibrations to that, It could cause concrete that hadn't quite fallen off yet to fall off. And then that creates new water pads for the water that's already leaking into the structure to get to new rebar, to get further into the rebar. So that's a cycle and it progresses fairly quickly. We have some of those vibrations, open up more cracks, shake off some of those chunks of concrete that it might've just been hanging on. So it just keeps accelerating the process. What Pasito says is baffling to him about this case is that the developers set a limit and then apparently just blew right through it. I don't understand in this case why they set a 0.5 inches per second limit and then did not adhere to it during the construction work. I do understand that that 0.5 limit was something that they set as a target limit and that there was no regulatory requirement from a building department or similar regulatory agency forcing them to use that limit. But if they're going to set a limit at all, they really should attempt to stick to it. It seems in this case that they ignored it because every day they had vibrations exceeding the 0.5 inches, as we said, up to 
1.0 inches per second or just under 1.0 inches per second uh, in the worst case. And other than the one day that they temporarily paused the sheet pile installation, the rest of the time they apparently continued to install piles without any significant concern. And since this is the only time pile driving was stopped, at least that we know of from publicly available records and what's come out in court, we don't know anything else about the mindset of the site superintendent or the developers or how they were evaluating potential damage to their neighbor. They may have stopped every time. They may have had really considerate reasons for continuing on. They didn't crack the pool shell, which is what they were worried about. So other than some bumps and scrapes that were obvious along this wall, there was no major sign of damage from this development. There's no evidence of that. But what we don't know is what was happening inside the bones of Champlain South. And and now, looking back on it, it turns out that that same stretch that they were working on on March 10th, 2016, where they're driving those piles, that same exact location on the Champlain side, you know, 12 feet north, is where a critical joint in the structure failed on the night of June 24th, 2021, when the building started falling down. Now, all of the experts that the Herald consulted in its investigation agree on this. The fact that there were more than five years between the sheet pile driving and the fall of Champlain Tower South indicates that the construction of 87 Park was not the trigger. It was not the straw that broke the camel's back. But it could have been one of those straws. And as engineer Chris Pasito said, it certainly could have accelerated the process of decay and possibly shrunk the window of time wherein the problems with the building could have been identified and fixed before it was too late. Two years later, in 2018, Champlain Tower South was reckoning with the Morabito Report and struggling with what would eventually add up to a $15 million repair bill. Work was underway in 2021 when disaster struck. 87 Park had opened in late 2019 with prices for condos topping out at $18 million. Tennis star Novak Djokovic reportedly had a place there. In March, the insurance firm for Morabito Consultants settled with the victims of the collapse for $16 million. Insurers for the structural engineer for 87 Park settled for $8.55 million at the same time. Now, that is not the engineering firm responsible for overseeing the pile driving. That firm was subcontracted by the general contractor for 87 Park. And they, and the developers, as we've said, have long claimed that their work had nothing to do with the disaster next door. Coming up on Collapse, Disaster in Surfside. A stunning new revelation about when the pool deck started falling apart. Who knew about it? And what should have been done to make sure the building was safe? That's next on Collapse, 
disaster in Surfside. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside is produced by Treefort Media, the Miami Herald, and the McClatchy Company. Visit miamiherald.com forward slash surfside dash podcast, that's all lowercase, to learn more about our investigation and to read articles mentioned in today's episode. And if you can, please rate the episode as well, as it'll help others find our podcast. Our hearts and our admiration go out to our guests who have so bravely shared their stories so that we may bring to light the many stories of all the people impacted by this tragedy. We also want to thank the experts who have joined us for sharing their insights. Special thanks to the team at WLRN in Miami, as well as CBS 4 News in Miami, for sharing supplementary materials to help us tell this story. Collapse, Disaster in Surfside was executive produced by Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman for Treefort Media, Monica Richardson and Rick Hirsch for the Miami Herald. I'm your host, Paul Beban. The series was written and produced by Eric Salat and me, Paul Beban, for Treefort Media. Editing by Maxwell Carney and Abigail Sullivan. Mixed by Maxwell Carney. Treefort Head of Audio is Tom Monahan. Line produced by Oscar Guido. English translations by Anne Liu and Lindsay Whistler. With additional production assistance by Jared Brom, Haley Mandelberg, Colin Motel, and Lindsay Whistler. For the Miami Herald, Monica Richardson serves as executive editor. Managing editor is Rick Hirsch. Senior Vice President of News, Kristen Roberts. Senior Vice President of Advertising, Tony Berg. McClatchy Managing Editor, Cynthia DuBose. Audience Development Editor, Adrian Rui. Miami Investigative Editor, Casey Frank. Miami Herald Senior Editor, Dave Wilson. Miami Herald Information Services, Monica Leal. Copyright 2021 by Treefort Media and the Miami Herald. Sound recording copyright 2021 by Treefort Media.